Nobody worries about kids listening to thousands, literally thousands of songs about heartbreak, rejection, pain, misery, and loss. Did I listen to pop music because I was miserable? Or was I miserable because I listened to pop music? Well, music is my life, man. What do you want me to do? Welcome to episode 60 of Love That Album Podcast. My name is Morris. Thank you very much for downloading. Hope that you enjoy the program I'm about to present to you. Um, It's been a crazy few weeks, I think, since the last time I put out a show. And yeah, all sorts of wonderful and weird things going on in my life, I guess, with, you know, family members having to go into hospital and laptops being stolen and all sorts of things. But, um, you know, really the biggest unforgivable sin is when the headset that I used for recording all my previous podcasts gets stolen. Now, you know, it's one thing to take a laptop, but when you steal the tool of a person's trade, their headset for recording a podcast, well, them's fighting words, I think. So um, I've gone out and bought myself a new headset, another one from uh, one of our electronic stores, and I hope you find it serviceable. I hope you are thinking that the sound is not too unacceptable. Well, anyway, enough of those mere technicalities, and let's get on with uh, what's going to be happening in the show. Now, normally, you know, I have a special guest presenter come on and discuss uh, an album that we both like, or well, maybe one of us doesn't like. But in any event, this time, I'm going to the source. Both The albums that are being covered for this time around are both albums that that uh, have a power pop flavour, I guess, yeah, I guess you could say they're power pop with a bit of a country tinge mixed in. So the first album that we're going to be covering is from a Melbourne band called the Livingston Daisies. They're uh, actually about to release a second album sometime in 2014, and that gets discussed in uh, the interview that I have with Van Walker, the lead singer and main songwriter of the Livingston Daisies. He's also made a bit of a name for himself in the last few years in his own right. He's, I think he released something like about five albums in two years uh, under his own name, and he's still recording stuff in his own right. He's a very prolific songwriter, but he talks a bit about that too. But the project that is of main interest for today's show is the album Don't Know What Happiness Is by uh, his band The Livingston Daisies, and it's a bit of a super group. So it features Van Walker and his brother Cal, local, I guess you'd call it Americana blues chanteuse Liz Stringer, and on the drums is Michael Barclay, who's played with Weddings, Parties, Anything, and previously that with uh, Paul Kelly and the Messengers. So uh, a really bit of an all-star affair, and they make some fantastic power pop. Uh, and I really hope that you uh, find the chat that I have with him interesting. And there's plenty of music thrown in there, so you can get a bit of an idea as to what they are all about. And in the second half of the show, I do an interview with uh, a singer called Sherry Rich, who has had a bit of a varied history, starting out with an all-girl power pop group called Girl Monster, uh, at least as far as her recordings go. And she, uh, I wouldn't say gravitated towards country because she already had, as she'll explain in the interview, a bit of a family history with country music anyway. But she's mainly known for her work, at least in Australia, with her band's Courtesy Move and uh, The Grievous Angels. So there's a bit of a country influence for her there already just from that name. 
but um, she's been she spent quite a few years living and working out of Nashville, but she's now back in Melbourne. And what I'm discussing with her is her project. Um, she's in a group with uh, local uh, power pop singer songwriter Ash Naylor. He's the uh, lead singer songwriter for a group called Even. But their project together is called The Grapes, and they put out an absolutely corker of an album back in 1998-99, just self-titled The Grapes, and they've released a new album in 2013 called Western Sun. If you'd listened to the final episode of Love That Album for 2013, our end-of-year wrap-up, both of those albums were mentioned in uh, my overall list, maybe not my top five list, but certainly uh, my overall list of uh, favourite albums of 2013. Both absolute wonderful recordings. So uh, I'm really very privileged to be able to speak to both Van and Sherry about uh, the albums that they uh, put out with their respective bands last year. So I hope that uh, you listen. As I said, lots of music so you can get a bit of an idea what it's all about. If you're outside of Australia, you've never heard of these acts before. Even if you are living inside Australia and you've never heard of these acts before, you get to get a bit of an idea what musically they sound like and if uh, they're coming to a venue near you I would urge you to go out and see them and uh, there will be details within the interview and probably put on the website as to how you can order their albums should you be so inclined in either digital format or in physical format for us old-fashioned old bastards uh, and also in the middle of the program our regular uh, presenter correspondent and all-round uh, musical recommender to me he's you know responsible for uh, a few albums being added to my collection over over the last couple of years mr eric reanimator and keeping things in a power pop vein he's talking about an album from 1999 from a band called the barbarellas and their album queen of the galaxy and i really love what he has to say about them the first thing i thought of was uh, a, a previous band he'd spoken about on the show called the ultra bimboos and he actually brings them up within the course of his discussion about the Barbarella's album. So uh, I please stick around, listen to uh, the rest of the podcast. Hope you enjoy. I'll come back at the end just to wrap things up a bit, but um, hope you enjoy the uh, couple of discussions that we have on the show for you and uh, Eric's segment, and uh, we'll get on with it. In a world where podcasts last over three hours, you have no concept of time! Balaban Studios presents... A stinking pause. Take your stinking paws off me, you damn dirty ape. Starring Scotland. Yeah, be prepared for me to have a little bit to say about that one. And Charles. My fleshly Grantham can do it, and so can we. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Hi, I'm John Water. Hi, this is Dolph Lundgren. Hi, I'm Lance Henriksen. Hi, this is Keith. Gordon, Robert Pune, Miguel Ferrer, Nancy Allen, Robert Davi, Richard Elfman, Ileana Douglas, Patrick Warburton, Dwings Hauser, Cliff DeYoung, Steve Railsback, Mr. D, William Cass. If you haven't been listening to the Projection Booth podcast, you're missing out. Each week, the Projection Booth brings you in-depth discussions of some of the most interesting movies ever made. I'm Mike White. No, the other one. I'm the guy who wrote the film fanzine Cashiers to Cinemart since 1994. Since early 2011, I've been co-hosting the Projection Booth podcast. Try us, won't you? I never try anything. I just do it. Visit the Projection Booth at projection-booth.com. Hey, I don't want to let you get away. But if it's wrong, then I should stay. I'll go. 
interview special i've got a really big treat if you're a fan of power pop out there then you should really get yourself familiar with the band of my guest this is mr van walker good evening van g'day mo how are you i'm I'm very well very well thank you for uh coming on to the love that album podcast it's quite a pleasure to have you on the show well thank you very much now before we get into talking about your band the livingston daisies which is uh really i guess the focus of this show uh, I just wanted to you know, briefly talk to you about your own material. Now, I first got to hear of you through uh, a compilation that you put out a couple of years ago called Underneath the Radar, and you had songs on the album from about five different albums that you'd recorded in two years. I just want to know, are you trying to outdo Ed Cooper? <laughs> no, that's, I think I, that's pretty prolific. Yeah, I think I was just making up for lost time. I think I... Um, I um, I've been writing songs for a long time, and I hadn't really recorded a lot of them. And, and once I once I, you know, had a, so many that I was starting to forget them. I, th- I sort of started recording them, and then I I sort of got on a bit of a roll. Okay, so hey, so these songs have been building up over a long period of time. Yeah, well, I've been writing songs um, ever since I sort of learnt guitar. So um, I've got a lot of um books and folders of songs and um in a weird way you start sort of getting anxious after a while because you you just don't know what (laughs) what the point of them are what you know if nobody hears them um it sort of makes writing new songs a bit difficult i think because you just start thinking well i've written another song you know so what so i was a bit apprehensive for some i don't know why i was apprehensive about recording but um once i started recording i had a lot of fun doing it and then i um I had this sort of burst where I did a lot of recording. So, if you'd gone and written that many songs over the years, then it would almost seem like five albums was like a drop in the bucket. Um, how did you sort of, you know, determine well what's worthy for being put on an album and what would just better go back in the closet? Yeah, well, that's the thing. I still think that maybe I've recorded the wrong songs and those other ones <laughs> that I should have recorded. But um, I think the first album was um. Was a was a bunch of songs that um me and my brother Cal used to play at. We used to do a residency at the Rainbow Hotel mm-hmm. in Fitzroy, and um they we did that for a couple of years. Well, we also had a, a rock and roll band called the Swedish Magazines that that had recorded. Yes, and um we'd play at these acoustic sort of um, folk sort of songs at the res at the our, gig, our weekly residency, and um as soon as people sort of started after a couple of years as soon as people started asking for certain songs then i sort of felt that i had an excuse to sort of record them right right so that first album was um was a lot of them songs that um we'd played during that residency mm-hmm. and after we after we did the first record so that was the celestial railroad that was celestial railroad and then after that um i just started having ideas of um of recording um 
more more stuff and like sort of different sort of style each album sort of a different style so it was a good excuse to sort of find homes for these songs nice that were written just randomly and you know there's 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 songs on my last solo record that were written before songs on my first solo record so so i noticed from you know reading up stuff about you that you'd actually sort of emigrated to melbourne th- uh, from uh, tasmania had you done much performing around tasmania before you came here not really like i'd i'd done i'd done sort of as many gigs as i could find but um there just wasn't as many sort of options so um we came to melbourne because of course there's a lot more pubs in melbourne yes. than anywhere else in australia so <laughs> this was the place to sort of go and um and try to find other musicians to play that was always a, a problem in tasmania is that we'd have certain songs of um like like i said like lots of different sort of genres mm-hmm. so we needed to find lots of different sort of musicians to be able to pull off the songs i think right right so you never played just the two of you or uh, around tasmania was it no i played a little bit around tasmania and me and my brother were trying to start a band and we played a handful of gigs in tassie and um we were doing this sort of sort of um what you would call retro rock and roll kind of stuff mm-hmm. and um and then around you know 2000 there was a big resurgence of that sort of stuff so um we moved to melbourne to try to find um drummers mainly and um yeah it's been an ongoing <laughs> search for drummers i i wanted to ask you just once more before we go to the to the daisies just listening to this underneath the radar compilation i thought not just because of the nature of the songs being so very melodic uh, mm. in in that um, in that great Australian sort of folky sort of way. And gosh, that's, I hate putting things in a bag, but it, it really sort of struck me being that folky melodic Australian thing. But yeah. the, the, but lyrically, you told stories in these songs. And the first musician who I thought of was, wow, this guy would be right at home in the company of someone like Mick Thomas. And you okay. have a Mick Thomas connection, right? Yeah, well, when... Um when I was trying to get uh, musicians together to record uh, the Celestial Railroad, what became the Celestial Railroad, I found a few people and I met a guy once um, and I was telling him about the pro- I was having problems finding a drummer and a pedal steel player and a, uh, you know, da-di-da-di-da. Mm-hmm. And he said, hey, if you want to, you know, kill like four birds with one stone, you should um, should talk to my mate Chris Altman. Oh, yes, yes, and, yes. Uh, because Chris plays all these instruments, so um, I asked Chris if he'd be interested in um, recording, producing sort of the record, and uh, he was in. He was up for it, and um, he said, "I." And it was cool. And I never knew Mick Thomas, but he knew Mick Thomas, and he said, um, "He said, oh, and I know where we rec- we can record it. We can record it in Mick Thomas's studio." Um, so it was funny. Like afterwards, people said, "Oh, yeah, this stuff sounds like Mick Thomas," but actually, I'd never heard of Mick Thomas and um oh really it was just a complete coincidence but um since then you know Mick Thomas has become a really good mate and you know really generous um musician who's you know he's probably been the most generous musician I've met you know and um yeah but someone said that to to a friend of mine they said oh yeah I could tell this is recorded at Mick Thomas's house because it sounds a lot like him (laughs) funnily enough it's just you know I think Mick Thomas when he sort of met me and us he was sort of He's always going, oh, you guys are just into American stuff. You know, you guys aren't into Australian stuff. So he was very sort of, um, you know, tried to sort of not push, but he tried to sort of introduce us to more sort of Australian stuff. But it just so happened that, um, you know, you can't know every music in the world, so you tend to just know what you know. And 
the best thing about meeting new people is that you always find new stuff from them. So, you know, I've learned a lot more stuff since I've met him. But um, I think we're sort of coming from the same sort of uh, frustrated, uh, frustrated, uh, you know, literature, you know, literate sort of a thing. And um, and I guess that's how our folk music works. It's sort of um, it's kind of like um, the news. I guess if it's to- if it's topical, it's kind of just um about seeing songs that are, are going to resonate with everyone because it's there because um, it is folk music and it's supposed to um it's sort of supposed to appeal to people in a um if not topical like a, you know an emotional sort of sense that a lot of people can can get into it can understand it and it resonates with them and also in a sort of a a very easy kind of a sing along way mm-hmm. so that people can hear the song sort of the first time and they can kind of grasp enough of it to be able to sing along with it you know Who's gonna make your calls when your lines are down? Who's gonna boil your water when your coffee beans are ground? And who's gonna wash your clothes and hang them on the line? Who's gonna light your cigarettes when your lighter you can't find? Not me. Not me. It ain't me anymore. Who's gonna wake you up when you oversleep? Who's gonna keep them secrets when there's secrets you can't keep? And who's gonna break you fall when you crash back to earth? Who's gonna welcome you home when they've left you in the lurch? Not me, not me, it ain't me anymore. So Moving on to um, the uh, the Livingston Daisies, which is your current project that you're almost like a bit of a local supergroup. So there's yourself and uh, your brother Callum Bass, uh, local um, singer and, and guitarist and songwriter in her own right, Liz Stringer, and and Michael Barclay, ex mm. once again the Mick Thomas connection, yeah, ex, uh, weddings parties anything, and Paul Kelly, drummer. So I guess you know the most obvious question and I hope you're not tired of answering it is how did that project uh, come together? The Livings and Daisies came together. Me and um, Liz met um, when I was doing the record that became the Celestial Railroad and I saw Liz play a few times and um, I sort of had a bit of a thing for her and I sort of I was you know I was looking for musicians for this record but in in a way I kind of um, used that as as an excuse to to try to meet her. Yes, yes. And I sort of said, um, "Well, look, I need a bu- I need some banjo on a song. Would you be interested?" And she said, "Yeah, sure, I'll be I'd be interested." And um, we uh, we recorded one song together, and um, we had a lot of fun. But it was sort of a couple of years later that we um, we met up again, and um, we sort of um, got together around that time. Um, and that so that was about five years ago now. And um, we've known Michael from um, Mick Thomas. And um, I think Michael um, was sort of taking a break with um, from from recording and playing with Mick, and we knew what a great um, drummer he was, but also what a great um, singer yes. he is. So we knew that he was sort of he was open to perhaps do something. So we sort of you know grabbed him and and said, I, I think at the time I sort of said, look, we're going to go down to um, the beach, which is you know Michael's 
home <laughs> and we're gonna you know we're gonna pretty much just sort of party and and muck around on the beach but we're gonna record some songs as well and he was up for it so um and we sort of we, sh- we shared that sort of same idea of um of kind of like rock bands that have a lot of um vocals and vocal harmony and you know that sort of stuff so um we went down and we recorded uh what ended up being what's gonna be the next <laughs> Livingston and Daisy's album Oh, wow. recorded a long time ago, but it's going to be released this year. That was the first session, and um, we sort of had so much fun doing it that we also looked at each other and said, look, let's um, make this a band so we can actually um, go and play this stuff and it not be just a one-time sort of once one time thing, you know. So um, we ended up going and doing another recording at the end of that year. So we ended up having two unreleased albums. We released the first one. Or we released the second one first, and um, now just this year, it's probably um, three years ago we we're about to release the very first session that we did before we were even really a band. How do you feel about that? I mean, do those songs still sort of resonate with you? Or I mean, because you, you often hear there are some songwriters who might record something and then they might say, you know, two, three years down the track, oh, I'm past that. And oh, I, I've never understood that. But well, my, well, most things you, you wish you could, you know, I, I was sort of saying before, like, you know, I've waited a long time to record. I still think that I probably should have waited a little longer to record some of the early stuff, but yeah, it's 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 a funny thing to um to most most things you sort of do move move past in a way, and that's a good thing. But it's also good because you come back to them. Mm-hmm. I think you know the things you sort of get over because they just become too familiar or they become passe. You know, you just. But I think if something's good, hopefully one day you'll look back on it, and if it's still good, it will probably always kind of be all right for you. You know. Some things are just gonna you're just gonna hate forever, and that's just the way it is. But um, <laughs> when you when you're trying to create stuff, you've got to take chances and just sort of you know you see how nothing ever turns out exactly as you want. So you're hoping that something turns out not how you wanted, but well. Yes, yes. <laughs> and not how you don't want, you know, badly. But um, yeah, we've we've talked about that because this has been the longest any of us have sat on a record, but without releasing it. And um, I think that's testament to the fact that we still do like. You know that the we 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 still think that the songs are strong because yeah, and a lot of other records wouldn't have lasted this long if they had have been like I've done a lot of um I've done a few record solo records that just didn't quite sort of they got recorded but the, they didn't quite get um released and um after six twelve months if that doesn't happen it's probably not going to be released because you lose you not only you lose the um the impetus and the the idea of what you were trying to do. Sometimes you forget what you were trying to do. You, ju- you just move on. But um, that's a kind of a good thing. You're supposed to sort of move on. So it's a good idea to, you know, record it pretty, as quickly as possible, you know, like not rush it, but just um, see it through to the end and, and get it out. But um, because of, because we decided to put this second recording out as our debut with the Daisies, yep. it just so happened that this one had to wait another couple of years because – of how long you know it took to sort of put that out and do everything we had to do with that, so it's it's amazing that we're still sort of into it to put it out. But um, like I was saying before, now there's a lots there's a lot of songs we want to do for a third record, so wow. we're waiting to be you know to get some attention. Everything has got to go, and that includes you and me. We lost the thread long ago. At least that's what they always say 
talk a little bit about uh, the second album that you released first called Don't Know What Happiness Is. Uh, mm. I, I found the title sort of ironic and yet not. I mean, lyrically, quite a few of the songs are about you know, relationships gone wrong, so the title reflects that lyrical content. Yet, mm. when you think of like uh, other, say, I'm going to use you know, the term power pop. Uh, songwriters like uh, Matthew Sweet, you succeed in wrapping these sort of down lyrics in sunshine pop melodies and harmonies that, you know, mm. I think would melt the hardest heart. Did you tailor write these songs for, you know, a power pop project? Did they strike you as first saying this would work in this setting, or was only once you got together with the Daisies that you thought, all right, I'll pull these songs out and see what we can do with them? Yeah, well, the, for, the, for, the, for the, for the, for Don't Know What Happiness is. I'll explain, like, the the title of that record is, um, it's Don't Know What Happiness Is, That's Why I'm Happy. Oh, so okay. It's like, um, it's like the faces, um, a nod's as good as a wink to a blind horse, you know. It's, yep, yep. It says a nod's as good as a wink on the front, but on the back it says to a blind horse. But the album is known as Nods As Good As A Wink. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, that's what that, that, um, that, uh, title is really saying that people are unhappy because they're too busy trying to be happy they're too busy trying to define what happiness is and it's actually you're more you're more of a chance being happy if you just forget about it okay and um so that's that title but um with them songs as well we've done the first recording which was a lot more sort of random once we decided that we were going to um record again and record in a kind of a um in this sort of genre i actually wrote uh three or four songs just right off the bat because I was excited and you know that's a, that's a good way to write when you, you just feel excited about something and you know stuff comes out so I so I did a bit of both I picked some songs of mine that I thought would suit and I also actually wrote some songs that I was like listen to what about this song this sounds like Teenage Fan Club or this sounds like this kind of thing so um don't know what happiness is is sort of ha- half um, some songs I'd I sort of picked out and said, I think this band can do these songs. And the other half were were written kind of like, you know, like this. You know, you play the song and go like this, and everyone goes, oh, yeah, we get, you know, yeah, that's yeah, yeah. Like what we would do, you know. But the first recording, which is coming out this year, that was a bunch of a, a lot sort of more eclectic sort of sounds, you know. So that was before there was any idea that there would be a band. So it's kind of more like, oh, this, this song sounds like Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. And mm. This song sounds like a Sunny Boy song. And this song sounds like a um, Chris Bailey Saints song, you know, and it was more, nice. it was more just us sort of um, having fun with the idea of um, doing songs that were in a kind of genre that none of us had perhaps been known to do. But we all knew from being friends that we kind of liked to listen to this music. And a lot of musicians listen to music that's very different from what they Sure. From what they play, because you know you 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 don't necessarily choose what you play. You kind of you know. Well, hopefully you don't. Hopefully you just make music and you just see what it what it's like. You know, if you if you if you thought too much about it, I, could, I can't imagine it could be that exciting. You know, in, in some ways though, it it doesn't seem like it's too strange for for yourself because I mean, like coming back to this underneath the radar album, you got songs like Down to Earth and Underneath the Radar, which sounded like it would have fit in perfectly in the uh, Daisy's repertoire. What's in your mind Ain't worth the shit If you can't find Your own outlet Well, maybe strange But it keeps me sane Down to 
Okay, well, over there so that's you go. Is going to be on this record. All oh, right. So when that compilation came out, um, that was that was a compilation by a, a, a group of people called Fuse. Yep. And um, they wanted to put a comp a comp out of my stuff, sort of to um, make it a bit more um, digestible than five albums. Yep. But because we'd just done this Daisies, or what was to become the Daisies, I was really excited about this new recording. So I sort of said, Oh, can I put a can I put this song on there? And they were sort of like, well, you can do whatever you want. It's your, it's your <laughs> thing. But at the same time, I think they were like, what's this? But, you know, oh, like, well, this would be something interesting to throw into the mix as well because it's a bit different. But, yeah, I, I, the, the sort of pop music has always been a, um, has always been something that I've loved. And it's not a, you know, especially certain times when, when I was younger and it was a very unpopular <laughs> genre, you know, stuff like the Beatles and the um, Kinks and stuff that I just thought that... Um, the vocal melody and vocal um, harmony, and you know, not even, not even what some people would call great lyrics. I mean, I love, I love pop lyrics because they're a lot more sort of opaque than um, the kind of narrative lyrics of um, of folk music or, yes. or stuff like that. And I actually, I revere that. I think it's a real skill to be able to write kind of um, opaque lyrics that are more about how you feel without the, the the singer telling you something definite. You know, so I've always loved that sort of stuff, and I've always sort of thought that. Um, as much as I've loved rock and roll as well, I've always thought that um, vocal vocals are a lot tougher than any any instrument. You know, sure, sure. I think you can do more with with voices that you know that you can do with anything. So, um, yeah, that was that's the thing about the days is we're all kind of like that. So that's why we sort of came together to to make this band because we're all of, of that mindset. Well, look. You, you, you won me over, I mean, not just with these great songs, but I'm a harmony vocal fanatic. And, mm. you know, you, you already gone and mentioned Teenage Fang, but I could hear that in there, and I could hear the Beach Boys, obviously, yeah. in there, and I heard a little bit of uh, ELO mm. even, even on there. So, I mean, were these these are all bands that you did listen to uh, over the years? Yeah, um, pretty, pretty much everyone in the days, is, except for me, are, are really good harmony singers. So I'm I'm sort of singing lead most of the time because because I sing lead all the time I don't really get a chance to to sing harmony mm. so I'm actually not that good a harmony singer I'm I can sing with people in harmony because I can sing keep the main you know thread. So what were you doing with your brother Cal over over your well, childhood? He's, well, he's singing the harmony. I mean, we're singing harmony together, but what I'm saying is I'm singing kind of what I'd sing if I was to sing by myself, and he's going all right. Well, if you're going to sing that, I'll I'll find the harmony and uh. um. Liz Stringer's the same. Like, if she hears a song on the radio, she'll just sing harmony to it. She's just one of these harmony geeks that just she can't help herself, you know. And, and Barclay's the same. So that was that's that's the thing. That's this band of um, one guy singing and these three other people just going, okay, you take the, that third, and I'll take this, you know, and I'll take, you know, I couldn't do that, but um, I think these if you guys, go back to the, the, the do it naturally, you know. I think if you go back to the first Paul Kelly album, uh, after the dots uh, post, uh, yep. Michael Barclay's on that. No drums; it's all vocal harmonies that he's, exactly. that he's doing on well, that album. The story with that is that they couldn't afford to do drums. <laughs> <laughs> couldn't couldn't afford to record it. They couldn't afford to, to record. I think. Yeah, I think. Oh, there's one. There's some one of them albums where where Paul sort of he sort of he was supposed to do a um, 
he was supposed to do an EP or something, mm. and he sort of went away and said, "No, we're doing a double album." I think it, mu- it must be gossip or something. Yeah, like yeah, that. yeah. But yeah, I think I think on post, I love that album. It's my favourite sort of um, messengers or Paul Kelly album. Yeah. And I think yeah, the story was oh, we just didn't have the funds to do it. But um, but Michael is a fantastic drummer, but he is a um, killer singer, and he's a big Beach Boys fan. So there's the Beach Boys there, and, and I, I remember at one stage we were going to cover an ELO song. So ELO's a a band that me and my brother could remember back when we were kids. You know, Dad would have all these um, Beatles or um, these videotapes of like Rage or whatever or whatever the show was called back then with all these solo Beatles songs on there. And so it must have been sort of into the sort of 80s or whatever. And, but then they'd also have stuff like ELO, which um, as funny as ELO are, they are fantastic songs and um, – these amazing vocals on them. Look, I remember um, hearing a Melbourne radio personality uh, declare Jeff Lynne the musical antichrist for, uh, you know, for his production technique. Yeah. No names shall be mentioned here, but uh, <laughs> but personally, I, I, I thought, I mean, okay, maybe some of the latter ELO got a bit mawkish, but yeah. when, they, when they got it right, there were some really memorable songs there, and, and I yeah. just don't think, unfortunately, he's been he's been given... Uh, do you credit all these years later? Yeah, which I think is a yeah. Really- I think he, I think um, Jeff Lynne had has got this great talent, but he also has a he has a problem with kind of um, reining it in sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> I think when I, I first um, ever played any ELO to Liz, I said you got to. We were in um, we were in uh, Glasgow or somewhere. We were on the road somewhere, and we had a long car trip, and I'd bought a best of ELO at a service station. Okay, I said you got to listen to this this stuff, and I think we sort of almost got you know, three quarters of the way through and she said, you got to turn this off. It's just, <laughs> it's too much. Like he just, he doesn't have any, he doesn't leave any space. If there's any space, he'll put a little in there. And, but, you know, this living thing and, you know, confusion and some of these songs that he's written are just, they're just fantastic, you know. Sailing away on the crest of a wave It's like magic oh. about you know a, a couple of the songs there in particular that um that really struck me when i first heard them uh, now i've i you know like anyone had gone and read you know a bunch of articles from the street press about you and they all seem to focus on your opening song wednesday but there really yeah. is something really incredibly striking about it uh, the first time i heard it and i laughed at that unexpected line in the chorus. You're, 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 you're describing what sounds to me like the end of a relationship. You're gathering your confidence to physically walk away, but you still find time to tell your... Get all domestic on your yeah. ex and remind her, oh, by the way, before I leave, the bins go out on Wednesday. It, it sounds like the joke, the old joke about the little boy who's running away from home but can't cross the street because he doesn't have his parents' permission. Yeah, um, yeah. So what... 
how did you come up with that line? How did you come up with this? And did you want to just break out from this serious song with something funny? How, how did you come up with that? Well, I think I was writing. I think I was writing the the guitar that day, and it was a Wednesday. Mm-hmm. And um, a friend of mine on Facebook said, "Happy Wednesday, everybody! I think everyone should write a song about Wednesday," <laughs> which no one did but me, of course. So that was one of them weird songs. When a lot of songs of mine at least work like this they sort of they don't exactly work backwards but they don't work in a linear or they're not written written in a linear sense it's more that you've got to find how to compose them so that they they end up in a linear sense but um so i sort of went all right wednesday and i think where we were living at the time we did take the bins out on wednesday Mm -hmm. so um i mean i don't want to ruin the magic of it all but it was sort of written sort of backwards but yeah it turned into a um a thing about all right so the so the bins go on wednesday so why is this person saying it so it's just a it's a basically just sort of a breakup of a relationship and they're sort of saying i'm leaving because you don't do anything you don't even know when the bins got so i better just let you know that before i leave you know there's something that i cannot believe that's happened something that i can't understand and it's you and it's you so many things escape my comprehension many things i cannot resolve and it's you yeah it's you but every heart must break and i got what it takes but i Um, it was kind of me trying to show off to my friend and say, here, I've written a song. <laughs> and, and was he impressed? Uh, well, she actually, oh, she, she actually now denies that she ever that she ever said that. <laughs> he goes, no, I never said that. It was something else. But, but I don't know who's, who's right, but that's how I remember writing it. If she didn't say that, I'm no idea why I wrote that, <laughs> wrote that song. But it, um, it's cool, though, because it's one of them things where people, um, they always think, oh, I should write a song about, uh, you know, Friday, or I should write a song about da 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 Or the other day I met a girl called Wednesday, and she was saying, oh, you've got that song Wednesday. And it all sort of, um, it's all a bit of a mystery how you, how you sort of do it. If you, if, you, if you wanted to do it too much, you, you probably wouldn't be able to do it. It'd be too convoluted, but... Um, yeah, our, our bins now, now go out on, on Sunday, and I forget all the time. <laughs> And you haven't changed the lyrics of the song when you perform it live? No, no. no. Oh, good. No, no, I couldn't. I, I said to I said to my brother once that you know you, you, a songwriter, pop songwriter, with their salt really should always be writing songs that people um, would sing when their emotions sort of went that way during their day. So you know you write a song that goes, "I'm really hungry. I'm so hungry," because everyone gets hungry. So people are gonna you know people are gonna be singing that song all the time, and you know. We've got a song um, 
you know, I'm tired, I'm really tired, you know. You wonder whether people will hum that song to themselves when they get tired, so. Or, you know, you should write a song called, you know, Stop in the name of love, so every time you say <laughs> stop sign, that song comes into your head, you know, this would be perfect pop songwriting. But um, I don't know whether I could do that if I, if I tried to do it. I think you can only accidentally stumble across things like that. So I'm not going to try to write a, um, a Tuesday song or a Saturday song. It's just... Oh, you could, have, you could have a thematic album, you know, something yeah. for every day of the week. Yeah. Well, if you could do that, I don't know, maybe, maybe Elvis Costello could do that, but I don't, yeah, <laughs> I'm not sure I could do that. Let's go in contrast from the album opener to the album closer. You have a, a song called I Still Believe in You, which is a long way musically from uh, the rest of the record. It's you know quite somber and almost psychedelic in, in tone. Uh, I'm, I'm confused as to whether it's actually an, an ode of faith to another person or to a deity, but uh, it's an incredible contrast uh, to the rest of the album. And, you have uh, this verse that just floors me. You know, you sing, uh, In my heart, there is a once loved vacant lot, was tended to, but since forgot, now everything's been left to rot, but I still believe in you. This sounds like a, you know, a character who isn't strengthened by faith or whatever, but is he's not quite knowing how to break it off. I mean, how did you realize that a song like this was meant for this project? I mean, obviously, you got the band to play it and see what they could do with it, but did you ever sort of doubt that it would fit in with the mood of the rest of the album i think i think with i still believe in you we um we recorded it a, a lot well more sim more more similar to what the rest of the songs sort of sound like and then we stripped away of a lot of stuff and um that was just a matter of um a matter of i i, I knew the the song um content was about um about someone sort of um I guess that their faith in whatever it is is the thing that's giving them the most pain about the the um, whatever the whatever the sort of break is or whatever the sort of um, catastrophe going on. It would be easier if they could just let it go and just say, "Well, it wasn't that whatever anyway," you know. But the, but the sort of the, the trouble is that you while you continue to believe, you're actually um, still in all this pain. So. Um, I kind of had an idea that it would sound really good if it, it sounded like the person was so, <laughs> so kind of um, alone or um, forsaken that they were kind of like floating in space, or it was, or it was like that. It was, it was almost like it wasn't in real time. It was in a, in their heart or in their head or something. I just can't believe it's true. decided to just strip all this stuff out of it and um, a 
friend of ours when we recorded that uh, second recording, which was the first re- <laughs> release. <laughs> You're confusing me. Confuses me too. <laughs> um, we 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 learned a lot of amplifiers and a lot of guitars and um, a lot of pedals. And this guy had this Pog pedal, which was like this harmonic generator. And um, we just got that out and just started playing around with it, just going, "Wow, this is incredible!" So uh, right. that's what gave that's, me the space feel. Yeah, that's Liz playing all the all the, all the guitar, but it actually sounds like these organs and stuff. So yeah, that that was sort of like a, a bit of an experimental thing. But but I could sort of see once once everything was recorded, I could sort of see how it could work in an album sort of sense. But I think it also kind of because it's so different, people kind of um, it pricks up people's ears so much that they sort of say, wow, that's, that song is um, so different. Um, but in a lot of ways, I guess we could have done that to, to all the songs or whatever we could do it to, to songs later, but it's, um, it, it turned out really well. It turned out um, like, like you're always trying to do with music is, in pop music and I guess any kind of um, vocal and, and um, instrument music, you're, you're trying to meld the, the lyric with the sound and um, you know, and sometimes, like you said earlier, you try to meld them together by actually doing the opposite. You try to get um, sort of melancholic um, lyrics with a very sort of happy, um, light kind of um, happy music. You know. Well, I, I love that sort of contrast. You know, the, as I mentioned, Matthew Sweet was an expert in uh, doing that sort of thing, and yeah, the more the more I delve into. Um, Know, power pop albums. I, I, I find that it seems to be a, a, a track that other power pop songwriters do, and, and you, know, mm. you, you find like on, on the big star albums, for instance, there's there's uh, these really great sunshiny melodies and um, these you know, slightly down to very melancholy sort of lyrics. Yeah, I don't know. It seems to work like that. I guess it's like a. Um, I, I know in country music they call that um, happy lonesome. Okay. So they actually—it's a known thing, I guess. If you if you if you bring if you um, if you get a really morose kind of music along with a real downer lyric, it's just too much for people. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So yeah. it's almost just like a balancing act where you say, well, to, to sing this song, I can't I can't really bring everyone down with the music, so I have to kind of to keep them sort of up at the same time. You know, it's not always um, happy days lyrically, but yeah. Um, I know that I know that 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 works a lot in in power pop and also in country music that kind of um happy lonesome sort of thing. I think it also just um it's a bittersweet thing. It just it just it just works together. Yeah. You say that you've got your um your first album, which is your second album, coming at some time later on this year. Yeah. Uh, mood wise, what's that? like? I mean, you've sort of gone and already alluded to that it was a, a little bit uh, less planned than don't know what happiness is, but um, do, I mean, does it sound like it's, I mean, obviously it is the same band, but does it sound uh, melodically like it's uh, a preface to don't know what happiness is? Um, it's, I'd say it sounds different. Um, there's a lot more um, keys on it. I guess um, there's no keys on, on don't know what happiness is. So there's keys on it. Uh, it's got a lot of real sort of rocking songs on it. It's got um, it's got some sort of acoustic sort of pop songs on it. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's different, but um, it's kind of the same. Ele- it's just all the same sort of elements. So it's still got um, all these great um harmonies all over it. You know, it's still nice. it's still got that element of um, 
that kind of um what would you say like the sort of the background and foreground kind of um I don't know what to say like a panorama yeah 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 that I love with with vocals which is they're not they're not necessarily right at the front but you're sort of hearing them more than anything but they're sort of big and they're sort of all sort of behind and um yeah so it's still got all that same sort of element on there but um it's definitely got a different um feel I, I think um just because it's 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 not it wasn't planned to be different if anything the um the first record was was sort of made up made after that so if anything the the first one was made a little differently so yeah i think people who like that um don't know what happiness is will like this one i mean most people have heard it like it better so but that might just be that it's new you know when will when will that see the light of day well we're releasing this this year and um we've We've like friends of ours have heard it, but um, we've sent it to um, we sent it to a few people to get some um quotes while we were doing this possible campaign to get the money together to to put it out. And um, I wanted to release it in the summer, but it's going to be released hopefully mid this year. Okay. But we did the possible campaign, so we've got to get everything together, like the t-shirts and all the the um posters and stuff that go with people who put the money out to to help put the album out. Um, so we've got to we've got to organise that. So now you know who knows it might come out. It, it might actually come out in summer, which I actually wanted it to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I put it out in summer last year and the year before that, and the, you know. But I think it's going to be sort of like July or something. Um, will, yeah, July. Will there be uh, like a, a, a national tour to uh, promote it, or or just? I'm not sure. Like- I think um, there'll be definitely there'll be definitely a lot of gigs around um, Victoria. But I'm not sure if we can if we can take it out on the road. I mean, it'd be great to be able to do that, but um, uh, we just we just don't have that um kind of support to be able to do that. I guess it's um it's a hard one nowadays to um to just go on tour, and like what bands used to do is just tour, 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 and they'd build up their audience. Yes. Whereas bands just don't do that anymore, and even bands that have a bit of um you know radio popularity, they still don't tour really. <laughs> These bands just don't do it anymore. So if you go out and try to do that yourself, you're playing to places where there's just people in the audience that's going, Who, what's what's going on there? Is that a, it's live music on the, you know, they get shocked that they're not watching the X Factor or something. So right. there's, there are certain places that it's just too expensive to do that. So we'll try to do, we'll try to get it, we'll try to tour as much as we can. But it's, um, I think, I think with the last record, me and Liz went and did a lot of touring, just the two of us. And we'd sort of try to sell. We'd sort of play songs from the from the record to try to, um, you know, get people to buy the record. Mm-hmm. But it's not the same effect, you know. It's not right. not the same as hearing the full band. But it's just it's almost impossible to, um, you know, financially sort of um, to do to do that because um, we're living in a different kind of world nowadays. Well, I look forward to uh, finding out when it is that you guys do get back on the road because I'm, I'm embarrassed to say I still haven't had the good fortune to see you. I was uh, supposed to come out in December and watch the uh, the double header with the grapes that you oh, yeah. were doing last December and just, I don't know what happened, I can't remember, but but um, I, yeah, that would have been absolutely... Well, how, how did that gig turn out? Was it... Oh, uh, it sounded like on paper like a killer double. Yeah, it was really good. It was fantastic. We'll definitely do some more shows with them, I'm sure. And um, um, the, the people that um, that um, helped fund the release of this, this new re- record... Um, I think they might have actually already received the record, um, the album in, um, you know, as a um, 
download. So I think all them people have actually got the record. Okay. But um, yeah, it hasn't been printed up, and the artwork hasn't been done, and all that sort of stuff. So yeah, it's a it's a weird world that we're in at the moment because you know it's but, not the same as recording and then getting it in your hands, and then you take it to the record shop, and you you know now it's sort of floating around, and you don't even know where it appears. Yeah, we'll definitely do another. I mean, we'll we'll launch this record in um Melbourne, and we'll play a lot in Melbourne. So um, uh, look before we go, just one last question. This is sort of a little bit out of left field, maybe, but um. I'm a huge fan of uh, Charles Jenkins and the Zhivagos. Yeah. And on his previous album, he'd gone... Uh, no, no, actually, no, a couple of albums back. Yeah, um, he'd, he'd gone and um, written um, a song called Saved, and you and your brother Cal are name-checked. How yeah. Did, how did that feel? What, what was the story? I, I couldn't oh, actually right. sort of work out the story that he was saying. He jumped over a fence and you guys saved him. It, it was like, I presume, at Pure Pop or somewhere like that. But... Yeah, it was actually a... Um... It was a gig at Pure Pop. I can't remember what it was. I think it might have been. We might have all been playing. It might have been a big sort of, um, you know, festival inside, the, you know, little Pure Pop. But um, no, we were we were playing and partying and having a great time. And so, oh no, it must have been Secure Festival. Okay. And um, so we're all in there, and um, it's got a fair, fairly small capacity. So you know, once everyone's in, everyone's in, and no one's really allowed to come in. So I think. What happened was someone tried to climb over the back fence to get in and they fell and they hurt themselves pretty bad. So um, Dave from Pure Pop sort of had to sort of shut the music off and sort of get everyone out so we they could get um, the ambulance and everyone in. So we were sort of standing on out on the street and we were fairly drunk and I think my brother said to Charles, don't worry Charles, we'll look after you. <laughs> Just, you know, just in a completely, a you know, throwaway line, and it became a song. Real, well, we were drunk, so he was just being, you know, he's being silly. But yeah, then Charles just ended up um, putting that in the in the song that you know, oh, the Walker Brothers will save me. And as I have done before in my time of need, I turned to the Walker Brothers. Only this time, Van and Cal, and they drove me across the river to a place I know. Instead of Scott, it was Danny. Oh yeah, oh, so that's that, fantastic. That was quite um, that was quite nice and funny as well that he sort of remembered that and you know he's such a great songwriter and he's obviously you know he, because he's such a prolific great songwriter that he he can grab snatch things like that out of the out of his experience and you know put them into songs which you know like we were saying before ends up resonating again within the within the community you know thank you so much for uh, your time on on the uh, on the show tonight and thanks for having me oh my absolute pleasure and so is any of your material like available for postage overseas so in case any of uh, the listeners to the podcast want to order it? oh absolutely you can um go to my website which is ramblingvanwalker.com or it's actually rambling van walker look with no g yep. and um from there yeah you can download stuff and if you want the actual hard copies of stuff I just, you know, you just press that button and I'll find out and I can send stuff to anywhere in the world. So, yeah, it's pretty easy. Terrific. All right. Thanks very much and uh, really appreciate your time, Dan. Thanks, Mo. Cheers. But I will go, you will stay, and I will keep out of your way.
So 1999 was actually the first time that I visited Scandinavia in September. My brother, sister, myself, and my sister's friend visited Copenhagen, Oslo, and Stockholm. When we arrived in Oslo, in addition to seeing the usual tourist sites, we had planned to do some record shopping. My brother had written to a Oslo band called Hellride to obtain their 7-inch, and he had mentioned that we were going to be there and wanted to know what record stores we should check out. When the 7-inch arrived in the mail, in addition to a list of record stores, the lead singer of the band had actually included his phone number and asked us to give him a call when we got into town. So, after a couple hours of finding a place to stay, getting some food, wandering around, we gave him a call, and he and his friends met up with us, and we went to a place called the Elm Street Cafe, and his fiance showed up and hung out for a while, and we were talking about music, and I mentioned that I dug this band, the Barbarellas from Oslo. And things got a little bit quiet, and his fiancée turned red, and it turns out she was actually in the band. And they were surprised that I liked the band, considering how quote-unquote light they were. But the Barbarellas are simply pure, poppy, garage, punk fun, wrapping their songs in simple sci-fi and really light horror imagery. The, The tunes just kind of wash over you. They're great, fun pop music. And... This was an era when all-girl band pop music meant the Donnas or Kitty or any number of other also-rans that just, I'm sorry, did not really move me. At least not in the way that bands like the Barbarellas did. Now, in the past, I've talked about the Ultra Bimbos. You can think of the Ultra Bimbos as maybe being the more refined Finnish version of the Barbarellas. And I'll get back to that in a minute, but let's pause and take a listen. I told you 
time I arrived in Oslo in 1999, the Barbarellas were on their way out. My understanding is they basically split into two bands, the Laundrettes and the Cocktail Slippers. Anybody that's familiar with the Wicked Cool record label run by little Stephen Van Zant will likely have heard of one or both of those bands. And they moved on as musicians and as artists. Prior to the album, there was a release of one four-song EP in 1996, bringing the grand total of release tracks by this band to 12. But I, for one, dig them. And now, I, earlier I mentioned the Ultra Bimbos, who were definitely contemporaries of the Barbarellas. So you had this scene in Northern Europe, because Finland is part of Nordic lands, not part of Scandinavia. In Oslo, you had the Barbarellas, and then they became the Cocktail Slippers and the Laundrettes, and there was a band called Mensen that were this kind of core of Gen X punk rock women who had grown up in the 70s and 80s and were making their own music by the mid to late 90s. In Sweden, you get bands like the Valadoras and Misdemeanor and Sahara Hot Nights who are making similar music coming from a similar place. And then you go over to Finland, and that's where you find the Ultra Bembos and the bands that were actually following in their footsteps, bands like Miss Monster Club and the Patsy Walkers. And what you find is just like their male contemporaries, they were taking bits and pieces of the music they grew up on, pop music, garage music, punk rock, and they were making their own take on those scenes. And the big thing that they had in common was the energy and the passion. So Barbarella's Queen of the Galaxy... Eight songs you can find it on a 10 inch or a CD. Uh, it's 25 minutes long, but it's all you really need. So, we're gonna head out now with a little bit of Giant Godzilla, and I'll catch you all on the flip side.
to love that album. And on this episode, as you know, I'm doing a couple of interviews as an interview special. Uh, and I'm very, very excited and very happy to have on the other end of a Skype connection, Sherry Rich, who is one half of the uh, Melbourne Act the Grapes. And if you've listened to the um, final episode of Love That Album for last year, where myself and some of the guys were wrapping up, you've noticed that this was uh, definitely one of my favourite albums of last year, their latest album, Western Sun. So uh, welcome to the show, Sherry. Thank you. Good to be here, Morris. Indeed. Lovely to have you on. For the benefit of listeners, well, I guess within Australia as well, but outside of Australia who may not be familiar with your background, can you fill them in on a little bit of your history? I mean, I first came to hear you on Melbourne Station Triple R in the 90s with uh, songs from your Courtesy Move album, songs like Is That All You Wanted and Beautiful, Talented and Dead. But you'd also been in uh, a group, uh, Girl Monster, which I'd only just discovered recently. So can you go through a bit of a history of some of these groups? <laughs> well, it could take a while. Have you got a while? Yeah, sure. Go for it. I've been doing it a long time after all. Well, actually, to be fair, I actually started, the first band I was in was a country band with my brother, Rusty, that was back in Queensland. And... Um, well, we were only together for a couple of years, and when I moved down to Melbourne, I got it into my head that I wanted to start an all-girl rock band, so, so I did. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I formed um, Girl Monster. I was a, the lead singer, and um, it was with Anne McHugh, who's a, a singer-songwriter who now lives in, in Nashville, and um, Damien Child on bass and Sue World on drums, and Sue and I still play together now, which is pretty impressive. Nice. I got a boy from the dawn of time. Monster were, you know, we had a couple of singles that were um, number one on the indie charts and big on Triple J back then before Triple J was national mm-hmm. and recorded an album and then sort of fell apart after we played it. The first, the first big day out was our last gig. <laughs> what a way to go out there. Yeah. <laughs> Shared a dressing room with Iggy Pop and that was pretty. Whoa! That's a story um, for the ages. <laughs> what was he like? Well, it was amazing to look at, as you know, <laughs> and um, had a, an amazing-looking girlfriend with him at the time. And he didn't really didn't really say much, but uh, it was great just to share his share the atmosphere. You know, yeah. So Girl Monster kind of disintegrated, and then I went back to my country roots because my mother is a, a folk, a country folk singer, and was uh, fairly active in the in the late 60s and still is actually she's still a singer sometimes does more gigs than I do in a year <laughs> <laughs> so I sort of delved back into um, you know country music and decided I just wanted to have my own band and because it was I wanted to not be in a democracy anymore I wanted to be the leader of a band so I put together um, the Grievous Angels and um, put out an EP that had Beautiful, Talented and Dead on it, which was a song that kind of, um, you know, relaunched, well, it sort of launched me as a individual singer-songwriter, I guess, in Australia. I was drinking with a friend
yeah, a couple of EPs and albums as the Grievous Angels. Well, actually, no, I didn't put out an album. What am I talking about? That was with the uh, with Courtesy Move later on. So I've pretty much been following the um, you know the alt country pathway since then. But I've always had a, a deep love of pop music, 60s pop, power pop, and um, you know psychedelia. And so that's why when I get to record with Ashley, it's it's so much fun. Sort of extending that part of my my songwriting with him. Well, so uh, as long as you've made that segue already into uh, working with Ash, so uh, when you and Ash actually formed the Grapes as a side project to all your other work, had, did you actually know him well at the time? Um, I knew him just a little bit because we were on the same record label. We were both on Rubber Records mm-hmm. and um, David from Rubber Records was putting together a Rubber Records sampler and he just suggested that Ash and I get together and, and do a, a song for that sampler. So we, we recorded a Gene Clark song called So You Say You Lost Your Baby. Yep. Well, you're smoldering with fly words Catch a moment on the run And you say there's nothing easy About the flower track you're from And you stand inside your wind stills Watch the Sensac become So you say you lost your baby Do you know that you're the one? Then you Which was a nice meeting point for us because it was, you know, Gene Clark is, you know, fantastic 60s folky singer, songwriter and Ash and I both really admired his work so so it seemed appropriate for us to do a Gene Clark song and and we just had so much fun in the studio that um, we suggested to David that, uh, you know, he let us go back in and record a whole album. And that became the first Grapes album that was a self-titled release in, help me out with the year, Morris. Nine, 99, I think. 99. <laughs> Sa- sounds like about 99, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I'd love to have sort of been a fly on the wall when you and Ash would have been having your conversation about all the power pop groups that you love, because really this this album is something of a melting pot. I mean, besides, you know, your, your Gene Clark song that you've already talked about, you know, you've got a, uh, a great Bee Gees cover, plus all the originals that you do on the album. And, you know, you've got uh, these girl group harmonies and this sunshiny pop and I just would love to have been a fly on the wall while you're having those conversations about the things that you loved in common. Yeah, you know, I don't even know if we had a lot of, if we, it was a very calculated thing, it was just happened very naturally and at the time, you know, neither of us were in relationships or had kids or anything, so it seemed like we had a lot of time just to spend at this studio, which was a studio of a, a friend of ours um, called Cal Orr, and we just used to go and hang out there and record like all through the night and it was very relaxed and productive situation so I think we in the same way that we worked with Western Sun each of us would come in with a sort of a germ of an idea of a song and then we would you know get the other to help us uh, finish it Mm -hmm. yeah Look, I first heard the album uh, shortly after it was released. A very good friend of mine pushed a copy in my hand and said he was doing the world's biggest favour for me by uh, getting me to listen to it. And he was completely right. From you know, the album's opener, I Won't Cry, I just knew for sure that the rest of it was just going to you know, really completely win me over. 
first time I heard it, it made me smile stupidly. It sounded yeah. familiar with that, you know, that sort of 60s pop feel and the tambourine, and as I said before, the girl group harmonies, the descending chord line. It, it didn't sound like a pastiche, it just sounded completely fresh. It, and, you know, the rest of the song sounded like tunes you wanted desperately to record, but, you know, maybe were, were you waiting for an opportunity to record them? Were they written specifically for the project, or were they songs that hadn't worked with courtesy move at least the ones that were yours and, and like on ash's side were they songs that he'd written for even that didn't work in that context um well i know there's one particular song that i wrote when i was in nashville and that's um lovely to meet you are you leaving town tomorrow like i heard your friends there say are you going back to london won't be coming back this way Before you get any closer There's something you should know It's lovely to meet you, baby But even better to see you go And I actually... Um, Ash didn't have a whole lot to do with that. I actually uh, wrote it and recorded it when I was in Nashville, so I played everything on that song. Okay. Um, but that was the only song that was like that on the on the Grapes record, and it, it I think I recorded it with the Grapes in mind. All, all that that time of my life is a bit of a, a blur because I was travelling back and forth from Australia to the US a lot, and um, at the same time was recording, doing the Sherry Rich and Courtesy Move album. So, yeah, that was Lovely to Meet You was um, was recorded specifically for the Grapes Project, but it was one that I pretty much wrote and recorded myself. But the rest of them were, um, yeah, very much. I remember sitting in, our, in a flat I was, I was um, sort of holed up in and punt road with Ash sitting on the back steps and just working on um, Ocean Meets the Sun and I Won't Cry and a lot of those other ones, very much um, thrashing them out with him and spending a long time on them. Mm. I, don't, I don't think any of them were, were even. I'm pretty sure that, um, uh, what's that, the ones of Ashley's, I'm trying to remember what they are. The Marmalade. Head of, Head of Blue. Head of Blue, yeah. Yeah. Um, Marmalade, we recorded in a backyard in LA. Ginger flat. A shabby cat Oh, Marmalade, you know We had much more than that I'm sweeping up The memory of you oh. A Dylan roll A coffee scroll A chocolate egg Marmalade. 
heard us talk about this on stage. We were, Ashley and I were um, both performing at South by Southwest. We both had gigs at South by Southwest and that was when I was lucky enough to play there with the guys from Wilco, which was a real blast. Mm-hmm. Um, and we ended up in LA and we were recording at Ward Dodson's studio in Silver Lake in LA. And Ward is from the Liquor Giants and other other great pop power pop bands. And that's where we wrote Marmalade. Um, Dave Vodica from Rubber Records just said, look, you know, spend a few days here with, with Ward and see what you come up with. So we went out into his backyard and it was a beautiful sort of tropical garden and, you know, it was sunshine and just like, you know, the perfect just situation to write a song. <laughs> Nothing to do but, you know, write a song. It's, it's an ideal existence, I think. Yeah, and I guess we were thinking about a lot of the, the sort of John Lennon thing with Smooth Marmalade and, and um, yeah, I've got very happy memories of writing that song. Ash Naylor does sound very much like John Lennon on that song. Yeah, you know, he has this uncanny ability and I, I also think visually he looks like all four of the Beatles all at the same time. <laughs> And he also can sound like <laughs> like either one of them when he tries. So we go to, you know, 14 or 15 odd years after the first album and you and Ash finally released the second record, Western Sun. And to me, uh, you know, the country influences seem more to the fore than the first time around. What was the impetus for actually recording again? Uh, you know, it was such a long time since... Uh, between drinks, had you always intended that to, you were going to uh, do a second album? We'd always talked about doing a second album, but um, as you may know, I moved over to, I was living in Nashville and I was there for nearly 10 years, so that pretty much kept Ashley and I apart and we could never figure out how, I mean, we, we write songs so personally that we couldn't do it, you know, via telephone or, you know, sending CDs back and forth like some people do because we don't write that way. But um, so when I moved back to Australia, one of the first things I did was, you know, say to Ash, let's, let's um, book some studio time and start writing for a second Grapes record. And, and we did that. So we wrote the songs all in one space of time, like it was over two or three months and we went into a studio in South Melbourne and pretty much wrote all the songs, mm-hmm. except for um, uh, Step Inside, which was an old girl monster song, actually. Okay. <laughs> if only you knew how many times I've watched you sleep, how many photographs I keep. If only you knew about my love, if only you A little bit from a girl wants a song that was never recorded and I sort of brought brought it to Ash and we worked on that together and sort of revitalized it. So we wrote all of the songs for Western Sun and then it just seemed like it was um, really hard for us to actually get in the studio and finish it. So we wrote all the songs in 2009 mm-hmm. and then we just sort of 
you know, had all sorts of hold-ups and because we're involved, we're both involved in so many different projects and family stuff. So we just had to kind of slip away and, and chip away at it gradually in the studio over there in Northcote. So like yeah. the first album, it was still done piecemeal. Yeah, but it was done over a longer period of time piecemeal. Yeah, but yeah. and also all in the one place, more or less. Yes. Um, so had 14 years of uh, added songwriting for your own projects and performing and having families and relocating to and from America changed the way how you approached the songs that you wanted to do with Ash this time around? Um, you mean as far as the subject matter? Well, uh, well, well, we'll come to the subject matter as well, but yeah, subject matter or, or, or um, how you how you composed, I mean, did you, did you sort of find that I've learnt so much over the last 14 years in terms of my songwriting craft um, and, you know, 14 years ago, this was done fairly haphazard and I want to take a more methodical approach. Or, or was there anything that was different in how you approach your songs uh, this time around? Well, I think we definitely spent more time in the studio obsessing over it this time, this time around. The first record was um, very spontaneous and even though we, we cared a lot about the sounds and what we were trying to get across, it um, it seemed like we were a bit more obsessive this time, and I don't know what why that is. Maybe because we had more time, perhaps. There was no actual sort of release date, whereas with the Rubber Records one, we sort of had a um, deadline, which is always good to stop you from obsessing over an album <laughs> if you've got a deadline. Well, the, the, the album certainly does have a very warm and rich sound uh, that's maybe not quite as evident on the first one. I mean, the first one I still absolutely adore, but the, uh, the the production on this one does sound really very rich and warm. Yeah, well, thank you. We were we were definitely going for that sort of overall feel um, and, you know, to align with the title Western Sun, although that actually the title came after we'd finished it all. But, yeah, we, we spent a lot more time on it and um, mixing it maybe not so much, um, but there was, yeah, just it, there was a lot of um, stops and starts because of different, you know, personal and just logistical things that Ashley and I were going through over those three years after we wrote the songs. Mm-hmm. First album had, you know, a, a variety of songs, you know, on, on subjects, you know, unbridled love, lust, which is what I always sort of thought <laughs> I Won't Cry was about. And, and I got to tell you, I'm a big fan. Stop me if I'm wrong there, but I love great songs about lust. Uh, but, you know, it's songs oh, like yeah. the, about that and heartache and ordinary tales of domesticity, you know, with, with Marmalade, just so beautifully observed. This time around, you've included a, a number of songs with a storytelling touch, like, you know, Make It Out Alive and, you know, Ride On Lonely, which sounds like those songs wouldn't be out of place in an old Western film. Ride, ride on, lonely
set a scene and give great mental imagery? Did you set out to write something in a in a cinematic fashion, or am I just reading too much into that? No, I think you're definitely you're hitting it right on the head. Um, and you know, the first record, you know, we were younger in a different place, and there definitely was a lot of lusty lusty songs on that record. And I love a good lusty song <laughs> as well. I don't think there's it. There's not really any lusty songs on Western Sun. They're more. It's more grown up. Uh, I don't know. I, I sort of tend to think. Well, I don't know. It depends which way you look at it. Is "Step Inside" a song about lust, or is it a song about unchecked obsession? Yeah, a friend of mine calls that the stalker song. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I was trying to avoid <laughs> that word, but uh, yeah, that that was a, that's a word I've written down. Well, like I said, that one was that one. The, the germ of that song was way back in Girl Monster times, which was very lusty, very lusty era. <laughs> I like. Um, but back to back to Western Sun. Yeah, when we when we started writing for that, we uh, like I brought in. I think "Make It Out Alive" was the first song I brought into the, the session. Mm-hmm. And then Ashley um, had you know Cowboys and Indians, and he had um, yeah. It just seemed like there was all of a sudden there was a similar sort of theme happening with the songs that were that were being collected for the record. And we wrote it all out on a big. We like to have a studio, a big um, sort of poster stuck up in the studio with all the songs and the sort of I, the themes and what sort of instruments we're going to use, which is something I got from working with Jay Bennett. He used to put a gigantic poster up in the studio and, and just sort of write notes as you're as you're in the studio and talking about things and throwing ideas around so you don't forget them, you write them up on a poster yep. and little sketches and everything. And it quickly, it became pretty obvious that it, that it did have a sort of a expansive kind of theme about love and longing and loss and, and journeys through life and more mature themes than the first album. And I like to think of it as a, yeah, I, I say that it is a, a concept album of sorts and that those themes could be just as at, at home in Footscray in 2014 or in um, uh, Arizona in 1880. I feel like those human themes you know, will always be there. I wanted to ask about another couple of songs in particular that really stand out for me. I love beautiful simplicity of uh, In the Night Pasture, and I remember hearing you guys performing that live. On a starry night in June Before the moon came into our valley I wandered up a mountain lane Beside a silver Has that you know those gorgeous harmonies and and really the simple piano chords and the repeated high piano note near the end just really lovely touches. So was that your arrangement for this song, or are you, the two of you collaborative on? Uh, does, does Ash say, look, I think just this nice little repeated high-end piano note is going to uh, do something really nice, or do you come into uh, the studio with the song all arranged in your head? No, I, I never have it all arranged in my head with Ash. I, I just I love what he brings to 
he will always surprise me and bring something beautiful to an arrangement. And um, Night Pasture, that piano, I actually played the piano on that song and I can't play piano. You did what was needed on that song. Yeah, it's, sometimes that's a good thing. We've got a beautiful um, 1902 um, Steinway piano here in, in my house that we brought from America that belonged to my, my husband's parents. And um, it's just magnificent. And I really wanted to have that piano on this record. And um, the song is actually built around a poem that was written by my husband's great-great-grandfather, who was a poet. And the poem was called The Night Pasture. And I sort of took the first three verses and, and added the sort of, um, you know, the, uh, the theme of it being about a woman who is waiting for, you know, her lover to come home from wherever, war or somewhere. Mm-hmm. But as far as the arrangement went for that, um, Ashley played the, the Dobro. He came up with the idea for the, the Dobro guitar or the National Steel. And yeah, it was definitely, um, he was over here at my place for about five days working on that song. Wow. And we recorded a lot of it here. Uh-huh. Well, it certainly came up sounding a treat, i got to say. The other song that I think is a real highlight on the album, uh, and very downbeat, but I have to ask you about uh, Brother Don't Cry For Me, uh, the spoken word tale of a woman who you know jumps off a bridge and she sounds like she's a victim of an, an abusive relationship. <laughs> I, so please yeah. tell, me, tell me what uh, made you write that song and also what made you take the spoken word approach for a good chunk of it? Well, look, it was a real... Um struggle for me to allow that to be on the album because I've never done a spoken word thing and I was very self-conscious about it. From a bridge, still sleeping, she falls. For a moment, free of him, flying. Awoken by the slap of the river, but no time for crying. Warm water fills her like a mother's embrace. I was saying to Ashley, I don't want that. I don't want that song to be on the album because it's just too, it's too personal for me, and I just can't deal with the spoken word thing. And but he was really, really insistent that it stay on the record, and I'm really glad that he was because um, I think it's it's a great way to. It's got a great place on the album, and I can't imagine it it would have fit on any other record that I'd put out. You know what I mean? I think it it fit in with the concept of Western Sun. But it, if you actually, if you really want to know what it's about. Yes, I do. Um, can you remember when that poor little, that four-year-old girl was thrown off the Westgate Bridge by her father? Unfortunately, I do. Um, well, that, I live quite near the Westgate Bridge and after that happened, I just, um, I get really, since I had children, I get very, um, much affected by those sorts of stories as I'm sure you do too because you've got kids. Anybody who has kids, you know, you hear stories like that and you just can't be unaffected by it. But every time I drove under the Westgate Bridge, I would just think about it. I was kind of obsessed and I couldn't stop thinking about it. And so that song was kind of therapy for me. I thought the only way I'm going to get 
this out of my head is to write a song about it and in a, in a way, in some sort of soothing way, like thinking that, you know, she's at peace now. So that's the only way I could, it was like, yeah, therapy for me, just thinking, you know, that she's returned to the ocean where she began or something like that. And in context with that, now that I think of it, I mean, I, I guess I sort of put this through my head before, but the spoken word approach really does seem to work for something as very personal as that. Yeah, well, I think I came up with those very, it's very um, simple chords when I was singing. I used to sing songs to my kids when they were a bit younger, um, when I'd be putting them to sleep. And I remember just noodling around on the guitar and I came up with, with that um, melody and that A minor to E minor or whatever it is. And, yeah, I just think that there was, you can't, um, I don't know exactly why I came up, I started doing the spoken word. I think I wrote the poem, wrote it as a poem, and then I thought, you know, I'm just going to try the spoken word thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, no, it, it really worked. I mean, it, it sort of seems like a big contrast to um, a poppy song like, you know, Step Inside at the other end of the album. But that's what I often find I love about my favourite albums, where you're getting these contrasts at different points in the album. It's not just, you know, all up-tempo, all cheery or all downbeat. It, it, the contrast, it works really, really well, I think, as an overall work. Well, thank you very much, Morris. You've... Um those are two of my, you know, Night Pasture and, and, and the Brother song are, are very personal and dear to me. So thank you for the nice compliments. Oh, well, thank you for putting out an album that I loved so much from last year. So I guess the inevitable question is, what's next? I, I think I read something on Facebook that you two have got another gig coming up, uh, like a, a dinner show or something like that in the next month or two. But anything yeah. on that? Um, well, I just uh, applied for the Americana Music Festival in Nashville to go and play that for the grapes and for me. So I'm, I'm hoping that that comes through. That'll be in September and uh, it'd be great fun to go over and, and play there and try and drum up some interest and maybe get a release over there for Western Sun and maybe do some house concerts on the West Coast as nice. well. I was back there. I was there in July and I did a lot of house concerts and other club gigs and it's, it's the way to go. House concerts are great. They're really good. Perfect for the grapes. So the next few months on a local level, we'll just be um, trying to drum up uh, some more house concerts or anything, anything in uh, like local venues like the Caravan Club or Northcote. Yeah, Social we're trying. We're trying just to play. You know, these the way things are these days. You can't play too often. We try and play every six weeks and do a sort of a special event. Sure. And that's why we did the 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 Christmas show. We did the Valentine's show, and now we're doing the dinner and show at the the Yarra Hotel, which has sort of got a saloon dress up theme. So I'm expecting to see you there in your <laughs> in your best Deadwood. You outfit. don't you you don't want to see me do my uh, Al Swearingen. It's not it's not pleasant. <laughs> <laughs> not, not a good look. Not a good look. Um, all right, look, thank you so much for taking the time to uh, to talk about these albums and, and about the grapes in general. As I said, you know, that first album just, it, it knocked my socks off all those years ago, and it's one that's never been far from the CD player. Uh, so, no. You're welcome. So, so can you, uh, just for the uh, listeners out there who actually want to get hold of uh, a copy of the album, either as you know, a physical CD for us old-fashioned people, or, or if they can they get it as a, a download? How, how do they get it? Um, you mean the first one and the second one, both oh, of them? How, so has the first one been re-released? Uh, it hasn't been re-released. It's definitely available on iTunes. So if you search the grapes on iTunes, you can get um, the first and the second album. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you go to thegrapes.com.au, you can get the 
the physical or digital copies of both of those albums, signed or unsigned. Yeah, so it's uh, it's out there. Cool. Go find. And uh, you and Ash have sort of got a... Do you have some ongoing agreement to uh, continue work, you know, whenever you can? Uh, like with new with uh, another album, will we have to wait 14 years for the third album? <laughs> God, I hope not. <laughs> um, look, well, now that we're both in the same country, there's really there's there's no excuse, is there? Um, I think that just one other thing I should add: we're we're going to we're going to make a um, film clip for Right On. Oh, lovely! And I think we're going to re-release that, or just release that as a single in the next few months, just to sort of reboot the album. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, look out for some videos coming up soon. Absolutely. All right. Look, thank you very much for your time, Sherry, and I'll look forward to uh, spreading the word via the show about uh, the Grapes album. All right. Thank All right. you, Morris. Appreciate it. Cheers. Bye. My huge thanks to both Sherry and to Van for those two really wonderful discussions that they had about their respective albums. And if you want to go out and purchase the albums, and I wholly recommend that you do, then you can get either the Livingston Daisies Don't Know What Happiness Is or the Grapes Western Sun, both from iTunes, if you happen to prefer the download option. If you want to get hold of the physical album, the CD, or the vinyl for that matter, uh, for the Livingston Daisies, now Van did mention that you could get it from his website, which is Ramblin' Van Walker. There's no G in Ramblin'. Uh, now, I haven't been able to find anything that you can actually order off that website. So if you want to get the Livingston Daisies CD, then you can go to Pop Boomerang Records. That's P-O-P, oh, well, you know how to spell it, Pop Boomerang Records dot bandcamp dot com and do a search for The Livingston Daisies, and you should come up to their page, and there's um, a means to order either the CD or the digital download or the vinyl. It says there are about 300 available of the vinyl. I'm wondering if a lot of those are already gone, but uh, you can make an order and find out. So, uh, yeah, popboomerangrecords.bandcamp.com. Do a search for Livingston Daisies. And for the grapes, you just go to thegrapes.com.au and you can order the CD from uh, Sherry and Ash. And hopefully you enjoyed enough of the music that you heard in this special that will see you fit to go out and order either of their really, truly excellent albums. So I guess I should mention what we're going to be covering on Love That Album, episode 61, due out in about a month. I'll be joined by Davey McLemore. Now, Davey is a regular contributor to the Love That Album Facebook page with all sorts of wonderful albums and information. And he's also a regular contributor to the Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema Facebook page, so this man knows his movies and music. He once was on Love That Album, uh, maybe about a year ago or so, he was uh, joined 
by John Ross, currently of the Feed My Ears podcast. Please go and search that out if you have not done so yet. But uh, Davey McLemore joined uh, John and myself a year ago to discuss Richard Thompson's album, Electric. That's his latest album. So once again, he's joining me to talk some more Richard Thompson. But, uh, well, rather than be thought that we just have a Richard Thompson fixation, but this is a rather important album, one, one that we decided a long time ago that we really should discuss. And this is actually Richard and Linda, their final album together, Shoot Out the Lights. And this is really a very, very important album in the rock canon. Dave actually wanted to do, uh, I guess, do the bookends, discuss uh, I Want to See the Bright Lights Tonight, which was their first album together, as well as Shoot Out the Lights, their final album together. And as appealing as that idea is, I guess, I really wanted to mix it up a little bit. So he's come up with uh, an idea to also include the second album by Nashville singer-songwriter Robert Ellis. The name of the album is called Lights from the Chemical Plant. And uh, I've really only just been made aware of this album through Dave's recommendation. And um, I'm really looking forward to discussing something new, a, a 2014 album. So something old, something new. Uh, the Shoot Out the Lights album came out in 1982. So I think that'll be a nice combination. Robert Ellis and Richard and Linda Thompson. I think that pretty much covers it. If you want to contact me, please do at rrrkitchen at yahoo.com.au. Either send me a written email or please feel free to send me some MP3 feedback. Either one is good. Always uh, appreciate your time and attention taken to the show. You can join the Facebook group at uh, facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash love that album. And please feel free to uh, start up any conversation that's music related. You can get other episodes of the show either by going to iTunes and looking for Love That Album. And I'd be very grateful if you left a review on the site. That would be nice. Uh, and if you want to give iTunes the flick, and I know that some people do, then you can always get the show by going to lovethatalbum.blogspot.com and you can either stream or download from there or lovethatalbum.podbean.com. And just while I'm at it, I guess I might as well put in a quick plug for my other podcast i get together once a month with my good friends mr tim merrill uh, wendy freeman and bernard stickwell aka bernie sticky on our new show called see here that's s-w-h-e-a-r and we discuss music related films if you haven't caught on to that show yet then we'd be gratified if you were to give it a try you can go get that from see here that's once again s-w-e-h-e-a-r dot podbean.com or you can search for C here in the iTunes store uh, by the time this Love That Album is up then our new show should also be up that will be episode 4 it's Bernie's Choice this time around and we'll be discussing the film from 1981 I think called Babylon but go through the archives all three previous episodes and see if there's anything there that takes your interest I know there are a lot of film podcasts out there and a lot of really really terrific ones but we feel that in discussing music films exclusively that we're taking maybe a little bit of a uh, alternative uh, approach and hope that you might enjoy what we have to say about these films that uh, we enjoy or maybe films that we think are shit uh, either way please feel free to uh, download and listen and hopefully enjoy all right anyway i'm going to leave you now and uh, have a wonderful month ahead until the next program and even beyond 
uh, and listen to some great music and watch some great films and just generally be nice to each other. I look forward to speaking to you in the not-too-distant future. Oh, one more thing I should point out is that uh, our good friend Eric Reanimator, who does the Album I Love segment, is also doing a series of Love That Album programs, which will slot in in between each of the main shows that I present, and he's covering his favourite compilation albums. If you subscribe to the show via iTunes, then you'll get those programs automatically. Uh, But if you go to the websites, then you can download those programs separately. And I wholeheartedly recommend that you do. Uh, Eric really, really knows his stuff and comes out with some really fascinating choices. So I urge you to listen to those shows as well. All right. Anyway, I'll be back inside a month with Love That Album and inside, well, whatever time it is from the time I record this with the next episode of See Here. But either way, we'll speak to you soon. Cheers. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.